Hey everybody, and welcome to the Battlefield Theologian Podcast. My name's Ethan Jago, and it has been a minute. I apologize that I have not pushed out a podcast in a while, but I have been busy, obviously, at uh, my new church here, Five Bridges in Panama City Beach. But I'm excited today because our last, one of our last episodes we did that a lot of people enjoyed was the Traditions Debunked, and where we talked about the altar call and the sinner's prayer. Well, today, we're going to be talking about something that many of you are most definitely familiar with if you've been at church for any point in time. And I've got a special guest coming with me. And so today, we're going to be discussing the history and origins of Sunday school. I know many of us who are or have grown up in the church or in the church now call it Sunday school or may have always wondered. And I, th- I know one thing I always like to ask is, well, why is it called Sunday school? And so we're going to be discussing this today. And I have with me, um, I am on the road here. I've got my buddy Mitch Johnson here, and he is going to help me out because this was a huge focus of his in unpacking this. So Mitch, thank you for coming on the show with me today. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. Glad to do it. So Mitch, give our people who may not know you, probably don't know you, a quick uh, overview of who you are, where you're from, family, everything else. Yeah. So I'm originally from Georgia, born and raised. Um, I've been in ministry for several years, Um, been on church staffs in Georgia, um, Texas for a short period of time, uh, in Florida. Um, wasn't really raised in a Christian home per se, um, but uh, God saved me when I was 17 years old. Uh, immediately called into ministry, felt that call, uh, pursued ed- education, went to Troop McConnell, now university, um, got a theology undergrad, went on to pursue my MDiv, uh, just finished up my doctoral work, my DMN, uh, a little over two years ago, uh, going on three years really. Um, and a big focus of it was on disciple making in small groups and Sunday school was definitely wrapped up into all that. So, uh, been married to my wife almost 11 years, have two boys, um, scout who is six and Atlas who is four and they are capital B O Y. So in the whole realm of disciple making their first priority and, uh, man, it's, uh, as my wife would say, it's going to make a man out of me. Now you, 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 where did you get your doctorate from again? Uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. There's been some stuff that we'll have to talk about another time. I just remembered that. But so you are now though, uh, where are you at currently? Where are you serving at currently? Yeah, currently I am at the Point Church in Pensacola, really Perdido, Florida. I've uh, not been there very long, uh, but I'm the teaching pastor. So uh, my responsibilities, I share the, the teaching uh, with the lead pastor over small groups really articulating a disciple-making strategy. Uh, so taking groups, basically how we can get from point A to point Z and doing everything in between. Um, and assimilation, all that kind of good stuff. Which is honestly very important right now since we're. this is really what we're talking about as a local church issue, is talking about the role of Sunday school and especially being a teaching pastor, discipleship pastor within the local church. This is right in your wheelhouse. Yeah. Oh, no, no doubt. Uh, I remember um, actually one of the first conversations I had with you about it. Uh, and I remember just reading off what the job description was and thought, man, this is it. Uh, this is what I want to do. I, I, I've done something very similar in the past. I was on staff at a church in Winter Haven, Florida. I, I can name the church. I, I love that place, Heartland Church. Uh, we tell people to go. Um, but I was a discipleship pastor there. And I think that's where my love of disciple making and small group ministry 
really flourished and came to be was there because I saw the need and really the lack thereof of churches wanting or desiring to actually make disciples. And a lot of churches say they want to make disciples, but they're, they're really not doing that um, practically. And um, yeah, I just uh, saw the need for it. And, um, uh, and really where I'm at now, um, man, there's a great need. And we've been having conversations in the short period of time I've been there of, of how we need to, to make disciples. Right. And so figuring out all the issues that are going on and, and just, again, how we can get to the end, end goal, which really the end goal is, is Christ returning and all, all that, but still, um, yeah, good conversations are being had and, uh, certainly passionate about it. Yeah. So what we're going to be doing is within that, that's why I've asked Mitch to come on this, uh, the podcast today is we're going to be talking and answering a couple of different questions. One, what is the history and origins of Sunday school? Uh, two, like, where did it start? Should churches have Sunday school? If they do have Sunday school now, should it be called Sunday school? You know, that's kind of a nuanced things. Uh, and you know, there's always these traditions and customs we do in the church that always has me scratching my head as to the origins and, is there scriptural or biblical precedence? Uh, is what is the point of that hour, uh, depending on your church that you have prior to going into the worship service? So we're going to just jump into the history of this and I'm going to turn over to Mitch and then we're just going to kind of discuss through uh, a bit of the history. And then we're going to make a transition uh, about midway through the show to talk about what should that look like today? How should this be implemented? We know the, well, you'll know the history and origins, but where should we be going? How should it be done? Uh, what is the best method for, again, focusing on that term discipleship, which I wanted to find that term too today uh, about what this is. So Mitch, give us the, where would you want to kind of guess it like start, like where should we start, especially here in America? Sure. Well, starting in America, I do think you have to rewind just a little bit, just about a decade before. Um, you certainly, you could actually rewind even further. We were just talking briefly even before we started. Um, but a, a man by the name of Robert Rakes, he's the, 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 the father of Sunday school, I guess, uh, the founder of Sunday school, uh, in the late 18th century, he, was 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 a newspaper newspaper publisher in uh, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, especially in England, and he saw a need for all these children who were really just in the streets and um, really running rampant and doing what they wanted to do. Really, uh, there's a story of him uh, walking down the road and seeing a few children fight, and uh, he broke up the fight and asking he asked them, you know, what in the world are you? doing here. And of course, I don't know if this is absolutely true, but you, you can do some research and you can see this conversation. Um, and the kids are basically just saying like, you know, well, basically we, we do what we want and really continue to ask them and, uh, really what did they do? Where are their parents? Why aren't they at home? He said, well, we're practically slaves. And, and in some of the things that you can see when you're reading, some of the kids would refer to themselves as, as white slaves because they would work six days a week. 12 to 14 hour days. There were no child labor laws. Um, you know, again, they did what they wanted to do. Um, and so he and another friend of his basically said, Hey, how can we educate these kids to be good citizens? Um, how can we, um, make these kids from doing wrong? Um, well, let's, let's educate them. Let's teach them how to read and write and be good citizens. Well, the only day they had off was on Sunday. Um, and, they call it Sabbath school. 
right? So it was the day they were supposed to rest, but they went to school and they did Sabbath school. Uh, and really the, the first goal was to educate them to read, to write, and to become good citizens. Now, I want to interrupt you here real quick to give some background context on this, because today, I think if we trying to, you know, look back and read like what's happening today in regards to the educational system back then, you would be in error there because at that time, education was primarily uh, for the middle class or higher. And what you're describing is those kids working in the factories. And I got a quotation here from John Mark Yeats, who's an associate professor of church history at Midwestern Seminary. And he he gives this, and I think this is really going to help you guys listening to this as to like, why did Reich start this specifically tailoring it to these kids that he came across? And why was it at that point in time that he started with this education? He says this, uh, and I quote, many children of the poor worked horrible hours in factories during the week, often in excess of 12 hours a day. Those on the lower end of the economic spectrum often did not have access to educational opportunities to their overburdened work schedules, which kept them trapped in a cycle of poverty, end quote. So with that, I think helps frame people's minds as you're continuing on with this, uh, because I think when we trying to read back, most of us think, well, no, this is how it's always been. Everyone's always had access to education, but that's clearly not the case. Yeah, yeah, not at all. Again, there were no child labor laws. uh, And most of these kids, I say most, a lot of these kids uh, their parents were either dead or in jail or they themselves were in so much debt. And that's why they were referred to as, as white slaves. They couldn't, they could never get out of the circumstances. And they thought, well, if we educate them on a Sunday, the day that they're off, then, then, it, then they can get out of this because they equated education to getting out of all those things. Uh, now we attribute Robert Rakes to being a, the quote unquote founder, but let me rewind. He was a newspaper publisher. And he basically marketed this. It was very successful, what he was doing. Uh, may have started a few Sabbath schools, and it grew in large numbers. And he published a newspaper article. And within a short period of time, maybe a couple of years, had thousands of people involved in this. And, of course, it would go over to the U.S. shortly after the Revolutionary War uh, in the 1790s, you know, early 19th century. Uh, but that philosophy of just the education like that kind of faded off of of individuals starting that. And then you started having like societies pop up, ecumenical societies pop up. But what you're saying though, is the initial let's like the initial intentions behind this, that Rakes did wasn't from a church perspective. It was from a education only perspective, right? It was reading, writing, and and to be a good citizen. And, And you could even add in good hygiene, um, they, it was a place they could have access to clean clothes, maybe a meal, um, now certainly the Bible was part of their curriculum, right? So the reading God's word, teaching them to read that, but it wasn't just for conversion. It wasn't just for disciple making. It just, it wasn't necessarily part of the church per se. That would come a little bit later. And I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but really within, you know, the Southern Baptist convention, Arthur Flake, those types of things. But Uh, There's a little bit more in between. So the reason I'm asking this is, and the reason why it's called Sunday school, as you said, Sabbath school is the moniker Sunday school is because that was the day they weren't working, which is why they called it Sunday school. The only day. So that's where we get the origins of what we call Sunday school, which has now been equivocated to mean something completely different. Absolutely. But the foundation origin was a day on, which was Sunday that he was educating or that they were educating them in reading, writing, good citizenship, and 
Bible was a part of the curriculum, but it wasn't a church-based outreach or anything else like that. This was a newspaper guy, like you said, who just desired to, what do you think the motivation for Rakes to start this was? Like, what was in it for him? I think, you know, you probably have varying opinions. I think it was a good, honest, he wanted to see um, good happen in his community. I really do believe that. Um, he, if you do research on Rupp Rakes, he was also for prison reform, educating prisoners. So I have no doubt that this was probably part of that. Um, or um, he just wanted to see good in his community, right? Um, I think he was a believer, uh, certainly saw the need for people to know Christ. And I do think he probably thought, well, if we educate them about the Bible, they are converted. Um, and then again, they become good citizens. That, but that was the main goal. Right. So that was to add value to society. Main priority. So we've got Rake starting this late 18th century. Uh, we know the purpose. We know the origins. So then how how then does it move uh, into I, I interrupted you earlier because you're I think you're getting there as to what happened next. Uh, you, you said that th- he got thousands of people involved in this and then kind of continue us from this point on and it's moving. He started it. Then what happens with the evolution, if you will, of Sunday school? Sure. There's so many ways that we can discuss this, that we wouldn't have the amount of time to discuss this. But it, it got to uh, America, United States shortly thereafter. Right. They were having trade routes and all those types of things. People maybe migrating over after the war. Uh, But around 1790 is when Sunday school, as Robert Rakes kind of formatted it, showed up. Um, and, And most of those were designed in the same way for reading, writing and good citizenship. And again, you could include to have a place for clean clothes, maybe a, a hot meal, all those types of things. Again, the Bible was part of the curriculum. To, 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 to learn how to read and to write it. Uh, but again, the reading, writing, and good citizenship. But a lot of those would kind of disappear a little bit over time um, on a, kind of the format of Robert Rakes. And then you started having these societies, uh, these really ecumenical societies, like the First Day Society or, um, you know, the, the, the society in Philadelphia, the Sunday School Board there or New York. Uh, the Philadelphia Sunday School Society, the New York Sunday School Society. But the First Day Society was probably one of the first and most prominent ones that got together, really more humanitarian. Uh, Again, the reading and writing and good citizenship, but they started actually creating curriculum um, for these schools. And so it actually started to look like an actual school, like you would go into a, a public school setting or a private school setting today, and they would have like a curriculum that they would follow. Again, a lot of it was for reading, writing, and citizenship, good citizenship. Uh, but you started to see a little bit more of the conversion there. Um, and also, a lot of these first-day societies, they would actually lobby. Um, I know in, the, in Philadelphia, it was lobbied for them to receive state funds to be able to fund these first day or Sabbath schools or Sunday schools so that they could receive books, they could receive clothes, they could receive food, uh, they could receive a lot of those things. Um, and, uh, and again, they, they, a lot of them won the government support for this. Uh, and, but then they, they, they first targeted, targeted children, but then they saw the need to target adults as well. 
But then it cycled back to only targeting children uh, because they saw that really children were easier to convert, uh, easier to, they just had easier access to them. They were a lot more flexible with their schedules, their times, I guess. Um, For instance, the Interdenominational Sunday School Society, the male adult association in Sunday school came to the conclusion in 1817 uh, and they actually said children are easier to reach. So that's what we're going to do. And really what's interesting, you still see a lot of the same things in a lot of churches with, especially as it comes to Sunday school, have a really, really big focus on children in Sunday school. Uh, that way we can reach them. And this, you have the all kind of statistics of children are most likely to come to know Christ and all that. I do tend to think it probably started around this time. I really do. That's just a personal opinion of mine. Now, somebody might come around and say, no, it's always been children. But you really started to see the, the influence here with, with really focusing on children. And, and again, they argued that it was easier to proselytize uh, children. And, that, and that, that may be true. Well, and what's interesting about that as you're talking about um, interdenominational Sunday school, I, I, I've got a source as I was prepping for this podcast a uh, primary source that was written at this time called a report on census 1831 education on page 78. It talks about, this is a direct quote uh, about, and you said this too, about funding and everything else for the schools is that teachers are to be paid one shilling and six pence per day. And that the children of Protestant dissenters should, if possible, have masters of their own persuasion and choose their own mode of catechizing. So what this is talking about now is that, this school, as you were saying, gets broken up into different sections. And so it's kind of like as you uh, almost like a, a plant and then you can kind of launch from there into the other schools is that you can make your own school based off of your own denomination. But it or origins was from a primary denomination. But then what it should be is if you're wanting to do this and if you're a Protestant, then you need to be, it, you know, do it this way. Or if you're a Catholic or even getting into the denominations, because as we skip, because uh, you talked about in uh, the Male Adult Association in 1817, there was another one, too, that occurred with in 1794, a committee published a report entitling the institution, as we're talking about the Sunday schools, of the Methodist Sunday school and most of its promoters of that Sunday school and active supporters are from the Methodist denomination. And that report stated that the number of scholars that they had in their organization for this was 695 and year by year, they were witnessing large additions of what they would consider scholars, which is funny when you actually look at what considered to be a scholar back then, there's one guy that I was reading at that time said that, you could have just written your name on a piece of paper at Oxford and you would have received your degree. Yeah. Uh, so scholasticism, even at this time, was not what it is today or right. what it used to be. And what's funny is that the as the scholars started to increase or the demand for schools start to increase, they did not have enough scholars or if you would, let's change the word scholars, teachers to be able to go to these places. And uh, it's it's interesting because... When you, when you think about Sunday school and everything else, it's as everything that happens, is it scalable? Is it repeatable? And can you like maintain that, you know? Right. And I think to your point of, of not having enough teachers, I think a lot of their thoughts, especially the, like the first day society, some of these other ecumenical groups, uh, which I want to touch on the Methodist just, just for a brief moment and denominations. Um, but what they would do, their hopes was to keep these 
children in the, the Sabbath school or the Sunday schools to educate them. And that way they too could educate in the Sunday schools. Um, you know, and if there's a book by Ann Boylan, uh, wrote a book, a history on, on Sunday school in the 17th or the 1700s and 1800s. So 18th and 19th centuries. Um, but she references this, um, around a page, around page a hundred or so on the right hand side. I, I remember exactly where it's at. Um, but basically saying most of the teachers of Sunday schools actually went through Sunday school. Which is so, kind of cool that they can actually, you're raising someone up to be a teacher, to be able to cycle back and to be a teacher. So that's right. sustainable. Right. It, it can yeah. be to a degree. Yeah. And, um, and, and really you touched on like the Methodists and things like that. Um, what happened was some of these Sunday schools like this, the ecumenical group started to kind of disintegrate a little bit because some of these states actually, it was really the Sunday schools that lobbied for the state funds and, you know, a, a paid for education. And so for instance, like New York state, they offered government education, like free education to children. And so some of the Sunday schools as this model was started to kind of disintegrate a little bit. Um, but the Methodists were one of the first denominations to actually create their own curriculum for their denomination. So if you went to the Methodist church, you went to Sunday school at the Methodist church and they created their own content, which of course we've kind of fast forward a little bit. And I think we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. Um, denominations started doing that. And I think that was probably a few things. It was states funding education. I think there was probably theological differences that they started to discern in some of the curriculum. They wanted it just Bible focused because as the years went on. It did become less and less about education because again, the state funded schools, public schools, and it became more about conversion Right. So it became an extra thing, an added thing uh, for families. Um, and speaking of families, you, you do start to see this, the grading process. And what I mean by that is you started to see children and adults being separate. Um, I think it was probably a, not a huge thought, but uh, Anne Boylan, Boylan even mentions this in her book, um, that the children would go in one place and the adults would go in another place so that they could have this is my words here, their time. So if that's a disciple making strategy, I don't know that that is sustainable, but, um, but that's kind of a brief history there of kind of how it started. Um, there's a lot more to unpack there, I'm sure. So, but recapping this as we, as we kind of, cause the history, I think at this point in time, I mean, it, it's, we could just cut into the weeds from then till now, but we'll, we'll jump into when it enters in the SBC, but it starts out as not a church outreach. This starts out as primarily an educational approach only that happened to have uh, a section of uh, promoting or if teaching Christian values. Correct. And then when it comes to the States, it is America at this point in time. Uh, it's, it's getting state funding from um, the the local areas. And what's interesting too is, as I was researching this, is that in the late 1700s, 95% of Americans lived in places with fewer than 2,500 inhabitants. And most did not have access to church or clergy, let alone school. So this actually was filling a void that wasn't there based off of the population at that time. But again, I, I think this is 
I want to really just reemphasize this, that this origins, if you will, was not a, it's not, this might sound bad, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not biblically focused. It's more educational focused with a biblical kind of sub point, right? Yeah, I, I think so. And unfortunately saying that is controversial, I think to a lot of people, which it shouldn't be. I mean, and really what we've been talking about is really just history. Yeah. This is what took place. This is the way that it was, right? You can't argue with, with the history. Yeah. It, it started off as, as education, purely education for, for good citizenship. And then as the years went on, especially in the U S as government schools, public schools started to come up more and more, it became more about conversion. And that's when, we started to see Sunday school as it is today, more or less. Yeah. And the book that uh, Mitch has been referencing, it's, it's her book called Sunday school, the formation of an American institution. Uh, So if you guys are wanting to look that up, you guys can. So uh, it's, it's this educational system. We, we see that as this is growing Methodists really took a big lead on this in 1790, the Methodist conference actually formally resolved on establishing these Sunday schools, for poor children, both white and black. And it will be perceived that, and this is what I found interesting too, which I think segues perfectly into where we're going next is that the Southern States took lead in this movement, but they were speedily followed by the Northern ones. And in the year 1791, a society that was established at Philadelphia under the title of the first day or Sunday school society kind of kickstarted this up. So what's interesting is that the South was leading the way in these Sunday school programs. The North kind of followed with that too. And just to recap as well, too, so you guys are tracking as we we're about to kind of time jump, if you will, but not too, too much into Arthur Flake uh, in the SBC. But the earliest Sunday schools, just to summarize this, the earliest Sunday schools focused on the literacy instruction and encouraged the practice of recruiting adult people's pupils, excuse me. But leaders of the movement, as Mitch has already said, adopted an increasingly evangelistic outlook in the early 19th century. Where did that evangelistic outreach focus in the early 19th century. What, what significant event happened right around the early 19th century? Well, actually, no, that I'm now I'm jumping ahead. I'm jumping ahead of myself too, but we see that this happened, but where I was getting at was going into the second great awakening, but we're not at that point in time yet. That's not until a little bit later. So anyways, so the movement focused on childhood and adolescent spiritual formations by the 1820s. And then that's where we really see kind of the Sunday schools kind of launch out And what I find interesting too, is like in the research that I was doing is that Sunday school was primarily for charity use, providing basic education and literacy to impoverished children that was limited to religious and moral instruction for church attending youth. So it it is interesting though, as this kind of fluctuates though, now into the second great awakening from a missionary kind of standpoint and how you've been talking, Mitch, now to an evangelistic focus which attributed to a type of religious activism, which happened because of the changing views of childhood and the spiritual development, you know? And so like, let's kind of take us from here. So I think we've got a good foundation here. Continue on with us with the history lesson, if you will, before we get into like modern day stuff. Yeah. The second great awakening probably for sure had, had a great role in that. Again, I I would emphasize the rise of, of government schools and that's when conversion started. You know, I, I probably have to be do a little bit more digging on this, and it would certainly uh, it'd be a great project for somebody to do. But I'm sure also the political state that the United States was in 
you know, leading up to civil war, all those types of things. I, I think you started to see different denominations um, creating their own content, creating their own curriculum and educating in certain ways. Um, of course, you know, you had the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845 and uh, you, we, we all know how, how it began there. Um, issues with slavery, all those types of things. But, um, uh, but yeah, again, with the rise of all these government schools, you, you, you saw the, the need for a conversion. Um, and I'm sure I probably had to do a little bit more research on the second great awakening and its impacts on Sunday school for sure. Uh, but, um, you, you definitely saw the rise of, of conversion there and, and wanting to invite more children, more children, more children, because a lot of people would go to work. Of course, especially in the northern states, the industry up there, industrial revolution, they went off and they went away from school um, or they went away from home, excuse me, and um, they needed to be educated. And obviously parents couldn't do that. And um, But the schools, though, I mean, here's where I, I get confused and maybe you can bring some light on this. It started out not in the church. Right. And where it was being right. done was not in the church. When did it become, I guess you could say amalgamated in which the denominations take it. And when they took it, then was it happening in the church or was it still happening at outside school institutions outside the four walls of the church, but under maybe a church banner? Is that how that worked? Yeah, or? Probably, probably a little bit of both. You, you would have some churches that would probably actually have the space for it. You, you know, there's just these one, this, these one buildings with this large kind of worship center or, um, auditorium, lack of a better phrase, uh, but probably a little bit of both for sure. Um, I think, um, that people surely could have met in people's homes or in a field or, or whatever it is. So then take us, take us from this now, man. All right. So we've got history of Sunday school. We've got outside entity making or doing education, but you know, because I mean, I, I'm, I keep trying to jump ahead and I'm not trying to do that. Uh, take us now, uh, Sunday school and the SBC. Let's go from there because otherwise I know I'm going to keep jumping the gun here to get to uh, the last section of our no, <laughs> podcast here. No, you're good. It, it, it admittedly, it probably, my, my, my quote unquote expertise should probably be all that, but I know it's kind of derivation and really, uh, especially in the SBC, I think in the SBC in the post-World War One, post-Spanish flu, that's when you really started to see it happening in the church and it being a program of the church and it being part of the church. Um, a, a guy named Arthur Flake, are you familiar with him at all? Have you heard him bef- before? Um, he was just a regular guy. He was a businessman. He was a, a Sunday school superintendent in his church in Mississippi. Um, he was uh pretty well-known businessman in his hometown and or not his hometown. He, he was born and raised in Texas, uh, but he was in Mississippi, he got married. And so love took him to Mississippi. Um, and the Southern Baptist convention, uh, saw his efforts in Sunday school and looked to hire him. Um, probably post world war one and Spanish flu, you had a lot of families that were distraught. Obviously a lot of people that were affected by death, um, really maybe a lot of people not going to church. They might have some trust issues with the church and just really needing to grow the church, right? So we're getting people back in the church. Uh, we're kind of seeing the effects of COVID right now of, of trying to get people back in the church. So many people have left. Uh, of course, that's a whole nother podcast episode, I'm sure. And there's been plenty of podcasts been done on that. 
Uh, but again, he was the first Sunday school director of the SBC in 1920. Um, he's the father of Sunday school. He is highly revered. Ethan, he is highly revered within the Southern Baptist Convention. And I mean, several books have been written um, about him. Uh, there is a, um, actually did it in my doctoral research for my DMN, uh, Dr. Jody Dean at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, he has a great um, work on the effects of, of flex formula in local churches. I think he he kind of focused in on on Georgia. I think, but but anyway, what po- was Flake's motivation though for kickstarting it, or was it just the same motivation as everyone else? He wanted to educate the youth, or to use it as you kind of were saying for church growth. What was like, I'm just curious is like, anytime I hear or see someone doing this, that's outside of like the spread of the gospel. What, what's the motivating factor behind that? Yeah, would I, you say to answer your question how you asked it? Yes. I think it was for education. I think it was for conversion. I think it was for church growth. Um, there's been several books that have been written. I think without saying it based on what I'm going to refer to as flakes formula. And I'll mention what that is just in a moment. Uh, for instance, a, a book called uh, The Growth Spiral by Andy Anderson. You read that. A lot of the principles are from Flake's formula. When he talks a lot about of enrollment, of enrolling people, the higher your enrollment goes, the larger your church will be, the more people will give. Um, you know, uh, that's where you get it. I think, especially The Growth Spiral, I think that's where you got the, 90, the 90s church growth movement. I really do believe you could stem it back to Sunday school starting in the 1920s based on Flake's formula. All right. So there's a lot of good in Flake's formula, but, but again, I, I do think it was, was for education, for conversion, for church growth, because it came at a really a, a perfect time for him to come in. Uh, he wrote a book called building a standard Sunday school, which is well known. I've got a, a copy, one of the first copies, right? Um, and it's it's old. It's it's kind of falling apart. I'm I'm careful to to really take it anywhere, but I'll actually open it up quite often to kind of read through it just to kind of just refresh my mind. And to it's kind of like a, a time capsule. Um, but a lot of it's still a lot of it's good in the book, right? So the high standards, and I'll go through the pros and cons of Flex Formula here in just a moment. But um, I think it was a perfect time of people needing to get back to church. I think he probably saw it's a time needed for restoration. I think his motives were good, right? I think he wanted to see people come to know Christ. I think he loved Sunday school, right? I think he he knew that it was knew the possibilities that it had. And, well, that's one of his things is know the possibilities um, in his formula. But um, but you see in in building a standard Sunday school, some of the issues in the book, hardly any scripture is mentioned. So it's not necessarily a man a, a biblical m- model. That's going to be controversial there when somebody hears that. It's absolutely a biblical model, but you don't necessarily see that. I think the principles you see in Scripture, but I don't think it's like a mandate that churches have to do this. Well, but it, churches you, did do it. Well, what I think you're saying is like it's not not biblical, but there's no solid biblical precedence for the the motivating factor or he could say this is the chapter and verse of why I'm doing this. Right. That's what you're trying to say. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Thank you. I'm not that bright to be able to articulate things sometimes. Uh, but no, absolutely. Like, um, um, yeah, I, I think, I think, um, 
he was just a really smart guy. I think too, I think he knew systems. He was a businessman, right? He was, he wasn't just like a, a lowly businessman. He was a businessman. Like he knew business. He knew how to put systems in place. I was just listening to a podcast recently, another one about a church that's, you know, growing in, in this podcast. Many people have, have listened to it. I won't even mention it. Uh, but hiring an executive pastor that was a businessman and he knew systems. He knew how to put things in place and how to grow things rapidly. And I think Arthur Flake knew how to do that as well. And Sunday schools grew rapidly. And you still see some some uh, SBC churches trying to implement a lot of Flake's formula uh, in churches, especially the, the, the very traditional ones. You still see the signs that says, uh, Bibles brought the attendance, the giving that stems from Flake's formula. What, what's funny too, about that is that, you know, attendance may surge numbers, but it, it's truly, what are you weighing comparing success as? Is it, is it a numerical success or is it a spiritual growth, you know, discipleship success? It, it, it's truly what is like, uh, but what are the principles and values for what you're judging something to be a quote unquote success, you know, cause in, in churches today it's, Oh, well, you know, especially with pastors, it's, well, how many people are in your church? What's your membership? As if a numerical value is dictating the success of your church or not. Uh, there's solid incredibly solid churches that only have a hundred people, 200 people. Absolutely. Just cause you have 5,000 people doesn't mean that that's a solid church or a successful church. It may, the formula may be solid. The formula may be successful, but don't, don't compare and weigh success based off of a numerical value. So I want to get into these formulas. Cause I, I think as you're going to hit these for the, our listeners, I want you to think as, as Mitch goes through these five step formulas, I want you to think where do you, or how are you seeing this played out within your church? And is this something that I know I fall guilty of this sometimes, especially when I was just a church attendee before I got into ministry of, I looked for this. It was almost like it's hardwired into our DNA of the traditionalism that we've been brought up in with this five step formula. So as, as Mitch governs these, I want you guys to think about like, what are you or where and how are you seeing this play out in your church? Not to say it's bad. I'm not saying that. It's just, it's interesting how this stuff is in the church, has been around in the church since, as Mitch was saying, specifically within the Southern Baptist Convention since the 1920s, right? 1920s? Right. Yeah. Right. So, all right, Mitch, give us the five. Uh, and then I want to kind of, as we move into this, I think when we transition into modern day stuff too, it's going to help us. We can go back to those as references because then I want to hear you Give us the five-step formula, but then also the pros with that. Right, sure. So l- let me just say this. It was this these five things, these five steps are incredibly strategic. They're very well thought out. I mean, he didn't just sit down one day and just write a book and say, Oh, this is this is what I think we should do. It was very well thought out. I think he probably practiced this in his local church before he was actually the Sunday school uh, director for the SBC. But uh, but the first step is know the possibilities. Uh, so that's basically setting the goal, uh, the numerical goals that you want, uh, the buildings that you're going to use, um, just, just knowing the possibilities. And when you read, if you, I don't, I don't know if you're going to go order a copy of building a standard Sunday school. I don't even know if they're in print still anymore. Um, but they're not going to be just listed like this in the book. Um, it's kind of insinuated and it's very well known. You can, you can just Google, flakes formula, five-step formula, and these will come up. Uh, But the second one is enlarge the organization. Basically, building, 
build buildings if you need it. So enlarge the organization. So the higher the numbers get, the more space you're going to need, the more buildings you're going to need, all those types of things. That sound like something, right? So again, I automatically think of the growth spiral of building buildings, right? So if we have more people, build a bigger building, fit more people in there. That's growth, right? If you build it, they will come. If you build it, they will come. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So I don't want to get too ahead of myself of what the difference between addition and multiplication. But um, anyway, so the third one is enlist and train leaders. So this is one thing I would highly agree with Flake here. Yeah. Oh, Um, yeah. uh, Enlisting them, training them. He devoted a lot of this book of training the right people and getting the right people in place. And he talked about, you know, the super, uh, the, the, the super, uh, the superintendent, the uh, Sunday school superintendent having a good relationship with the pastor. And he discusses if you get a bad superintendent and a bad relationship with the pastor, Sunday school is not going to flourish. Well, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, but, shouldn't that be a given? Right. Yeah, shouldn't the per- absolutely. I mean, shouldn't the pastor be appointing the Sunday school superintendent if you have one? I right, mean, yeah, right. I yeah, like that's a yeah. no brainer. So, yeah. So I really agree with him enlisting the right people, training the right people um, and having good leadership to be able to teach kids. Right. And really, again, I think the influence was a lot on kids, but this was adults as well. Um, so, again, it was conversion for everyone, not just the kids, but really a highlight of kids, too. Uh, the fourth step was provide the space. So have the right size of rooms. So he devotes part of his building a standard Sunday school. And this was like a common book in the SBC years ago, 100 years ago. I mean, churches would have had stacks of these books so everyone could read this. So they'd all be on the same page, which is a good thing. Right. Um, but he would give guidelines for the amount of space for each room. Say if you have 10 adults, you need a room this size. But if you have 10 kids, you know, age five, you need a room in this space. It's kind of intertwined with enlarge the organization. Did he have also with a, a student instructor, you know, ratio of like for every 10 kids you need yeah. to have, what do you know what that is off the top I, of your head? I don't head? remember that ratio. He's pretty detailed. Yeah. Uh, on a lot of these things. I do remember uh, one, he, he had very high standards, which is phenomenal. He wanted 75% of the enrollment of Sunday school to actually be in worship. I would agree with that. Which, that's a high standard. And yeah. I know when I was at Heartland Church, our, we said, you know what, we're going to do 80% because the, the standard typically is around 60%. I think, again, that standard comes from the growth spiral, the book I keep mentioning. Um, that's where that kind of comes from. And honestly, that's a pretty good number though, but he had very, very high standards. Um, and the fifth one is go after the people. So evangelism, visitation, all those types of things. Um, you know, I mean, he was adamant about if you get guests coming to your church, follow up with them. You could probably make the case. I don't know if this is true or not, but this might be where like the old Monday night visitation comes from. I say old knocking on doors. Some people would, yeah, some people, churches probably practice this. I've been a part of a church that did that a very, you know, a large church that did that. And for some churches, that's okay. I, I actually started going to church because of somebody knocked on my door. So it could be beneficial to some, um, but there's certainly different ways now uh, that you could go about that. But well, I feel like today's era, if someone knocks on my door, I immediately turn to my wife, who, who's coming over? Yeah, who in the world? I, 
Yeah. How dare they knock on my door? So I yeah. think even that era, that culture is, is done. Cause I know when my doorbell rings or the ring alarm goes off, I'm like, who, who is coming over? But I mean, even as a kid, I remember I'm like, Oh, right. Someone's over now's an adult. I'm like, uh, uh-uh. well, I, I don't so, feel like so what's, inter- what's interesting in this, it, this book, and, and this is for free, um, in a part of his going after the people or the evangelism, I think it's towards the front of the book, honestly, uh, going after the people. Um, there's a sentence at the bottom of the page. I think it's on in the um, in the 30s, the page 30s, somewhere in there on the left hand side towards the bottom uh, about going after the people. It says, make sure that you go in, go to every white person's home. And I thought, what in the world? And I actually emailed Jody Dean. I don't know him personally, but I just corresponded with him in the, with a few emails a few years ago. And um, he said, well, you, you, you have to think contextually and culturally. You know, Jim Crow laws were probably in effect, and they probably could not go to anyone else's home other than their own race. So those things were put in place, and you could argue against that, but you got to think contextually, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, so to your point of like, are you knocking on my door? You're not knocking on my door, are you? You know, it's kind of what in the world. So, uh, I just I just remembered that. Yeah. So, I uh, it, it's interesting hearing these five these five steps, and we're going to come back to those. So now, what's the pros and cons? What's I mean, with everything, especially I mean, you, you I think it's very dangerous, and a lot of churches are are ran as business CEO style models, which I would disagree with. I think to a point, obviously, you've got to have that. Uh, mindset to an extent, but that shouldn't be the driving factor. I don't want to interject too much, but I think a lot of building a standard Sunday school or having a standard Sunday school was more from a business perspective than a spiritual perspective for sure. Yeah. And and so with that, it's let's, let's talk pros and cons because there is definitely pros in this. And, you know, I, I would say it's the enlisting and training leaders, and then the evangelism visitation. I would a hundred percent get behind that. Everything else is kind of I would say a mute point uh, to put it bluntly is just like, yeah, that's buildings. Okay, sure. Uh, right size rooms. Uh, all right. Yeah. I mean, you don't want 10 people in a room of 400. I get that. Right. But right. like the, the pros I would see is, is that, so what, what are the pros that you saw uh, in your research that you, you would kind of take away? Yeah. So, so according to flex form it's probably a little generic the pros. Uh, the first one is the high standards. Wow. I mean, the 75% enrollment of being involved in Sunday school or Sunday worship, uh, high standard, it's incredibly strategic, uh, very well thought out. Um, and uh, the last one, I would probably say a lot of its principles could probably still be used. You could probably take, if you're trying to create a disciple making strategy in your church, you could use a lot of its principles. Um, of course, you know, the enrollment of getting 75% involved in your small group ministry, your Sunday school ministry, whatever that is, um, and, and utilizing it, right? So um, there, there's probably a lot more to unpack there, but uh, that's just a little generic and, and, and probably, again, I don't want to get into too much detail on the pros. There's probably, honestly, this is going to be controversial. Some people listening, I think there's more cons to it than pros. Well, I mean, it's when you're getting the cart before the horse as the primary driving factor behind the implementation and start of this is the uh, business side of things and not the scriptural spiritual side of things. I would say 
that there's nothing wrong in saying that there's probably more cons to this. Not that this God can't use this in you know, any way he fashioned or he cares to do so, but it's still saying is the intentionality. If there's anything that I've learned throughout scripture and then playing out in the local church is that the intentionality and the launching point of why a ministry starts, parachurch ministry starts, a outreach ministry starts, anything that the church does, like it's got to be biblically founded and solidified and flowing out of or pointing people back to scripture. So I don't think there's anything wrong with saying like, yeah, there's definitely some pros hundred percent. Like we'll give credit where credit's due, but probably more cons. And so walk us through some of those cons. Yeah. So the number one thing is, and let me just say this, there, there are so many people, especially within the SBC that um, hearing that there's more cons than pros is, is very controversial to them. But I think one of the, the biggest cons of, of this kind of model is that it discusses more of addition rather than multiplication. So what does that mean? What, what is, what's the difference between addition rather than multiplication? What does that mean? So it's like, get as many people as you can in here, fill the building, fill the building, fill the building, you know, get people fill the in the tank. seats. Yeah. Fill the <laughs> tank, get people in the seats. Uh, the more people we can get here, the more people that will give, the more people that will add to the, to the, I guess the machine, lack of a better word there. Uh, but get people, get people here, get people here, get people here. But And what's interesting about that is if when you have that get people here mindset of we just got to get them in the door, they become less of image bearers of God and they become more transactional property pieces. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And an addition can happen very fast, but that doesn't mean that people are actually being motivated to do what a disciple does. Right. So addition is church growth focuses on church growth rather than disciple making. But what's funny is true disciple making will grow the church. Yeah. Yep. Slower, but it will be more sustainable long term. And you'll right. actually have people who know what it is that they believe and be able to articulate that to others. hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But, uh, but multiplication is, is multiplying yourself as an individual. So addition, there's probably a lot of people in our churches that don't do anything, right? They're just a, a warm body in a seat, but multiplication is you were actually multiplying, replicating your life to someone else in the name of Jesus. Um, I think also within the model, it tends to take ministry away from the family and the individual. So, um, um, case on like, for instance, the, the chapter on evangelism and building of a standard Sunday school, um, what they, what they do is put more ministry on the pastor. So this is probably where this culture comes from. Um, Arthur Flake basically asked the question, how is the pastor going to win souls if we don't bring them? So what he's communicating is the pastor is the one who shares the gospel. He's the one for the con conversion of souls, right? I think, I don't think Arthur Flake would say that Jesus isn't the one who does it, but this is probably where that comes from of where the pastor is the one who does this, not me. And so this is where it kind of comes from. So true evangelism. And I think we tend to put discipleship and evangelism in two different categories, which I don't think we should do. Um, and I kind of lost my thought there, but um, it kind of 
um, takes the the responsibility of evangelism away. And what people do is say, hey, why don't you come to church with me instead of what you would do in multiplication of sharing your life and actually sharing your faith with someone. Right. So what what I think Arthur Flake unintentionally did is say, you know what, just let the pastor be the one who shares the gospel. Find your place in teaching the material that's given. And what's funny about that, too, that you bring this up is in the podcast that we did on altar calls and sinners prayer is uh, one one complaint I have heard frequently on why I don't do an altar call is, Pastor, I brought my lost fill in the blank to church. And if had you only done the altar call, they would have been able to accept Christ. And it puts it takes the individual Christian out of the hot seat, as you're saying, of executing evangelism and makes it appear that that's only the work of the pastor when it's the work of the church. It's the work of the entire church, the body, the people that make up and constitute the church body too. And so it, I, it's funny. I, I just had a light bulb moment going off in my head of how many times I've seen this play out in the modern church context is that it's, it, it man, I, I, it's just it mind blowing to think about that. It's like, get them in the door and let the pastor convert them. And yes, I, I know what you're saying. Let's, let's not assume that Flake's not saying the spirit's working that that's understood, but it's just interesting though. It, it, it devoids responsibility off of the individuals for evangelism and the great commission. And it puts all of it on the pastor, which if the pastor is preaching the word of God, regardless of what it is, it's there, they will be hearing uh, a form of salvation through Christ alone. And so that's that's really telling because I I mean as we're slowly making the transition in the modern context I see that play out all the time. Well, I, I think day. I think it was you know the intent was hey let's let's grow the church by getting a lot a lot of lost people here and get them converted you know in the sermon or Sunday school you know and, and certainly you could make the case that some people could make the case that the church is an evangelistic tool. But the church isn't for lost people, right? It's, it's, it's believers getting together. Can lost people go to church? Absolutely. I'm not saying that. Like, we shouldn't invite, I'm not saying we shouldn't invite our lost friends to church. I'm not saying that either. But the church is for believers, right? And, I, and I've been saying this in our, in, at the Point Church uh, frequently, um, you know, as we discuss a new disciple-making strategy, we need to remember that we worship when we gather, but we worship when we scatter, Right. So we compartmentalize that sometimes. Yeah. It shouldn't only be in the church building. Right. Yeah. That's not and, and biblical. We should, and, our, and our intent in inviting someone to church shouldn't just to be, well, they're going to hear the gospel there. No, you are a disciple of Christ. So be a disciple. Right. So you, you do what Jesus did. Um, I, I think probably one of the last cons or the last two cons is I think Flake probably communicated, hey, if you just follow this model, the church will grow just do this and this will happen with that is tied in with, it doesn't really contextualize. So one church down here in an urban area might have a standard Sunday school, but you go into a rural area, it may work a little bit differently, right? You may not have as many people able to teach or willing to teach or what have you. Listen, I just moved from a a pretty rural area in South Georgia. And I can tell you, it was different from any ministry context I've ever been in. I've been in maybe kind of more suburb, urban kind of area, ministry areas, very different. And I think that's what Flake does not do. It doesn't very doesn't contextualize. Now, 
you have to think context from when he wrote this, writing to the Southern Baptist Convention, most of the churches and the mindsets were the same, right? Rural context, all that. So I have to give him the benefit of the doubt there. Yeah, but what's what's funny is when you're not contextualizing, uh, it's it's not a one size fits all kind of f- form. It doesn't work that way. And what you see happening uh, in t- today's culture is, you know, for instance, youth ministry, right? Uh, you were you you just were at as a youth pastor is take a survey across the U.S. Right? I can guarantee you, if you were to just do a drop in at any youth group gathering whatsoever across America they will all probably look very similar. And here's what it would be. Games, some kind of food, maybe some goofy things, some worship, a little bit of a message, and then games again. I mean, I, that's pretty much like open turnkey youth ministry right there. But what you see, for instance, if, if, if or our church is in Panama City Beach, if I try and take what we are doing at Panama City Beach and I fly to, let's just say, Nebraska, middle of Nebraska and say, hey, this is how we've been doing it. You know, we do beach worships. We do this and this. That's what you need to do. Well, we don't have a beach. Go to a lake. But that's not like we don't go to lakes in Nebraska. Like that's not what we it doesn't work. And so when you try and put church in a box and try and ship it and make it scalable like that to say, no, this this could work for you. One, it to me, from a pastor's perspective, it's not developing it, something specifically and tailoring it for your people. You're, you're taking something that someone else has done, replicating it as your own, and hoping that this will work. Well, what this is, is essentially what we're beating around the bush with, is just straight up pragmatism, uh, which cannot have a place in the church. Is like, I can't be pragmatic as to why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, It needs to be biblically based and biblically sound. So now let's switch into a modern context. All right. We've got the pros, we got the cons. We, we've kind of gotten a history up here. What should the hour prior to worship look like? Because this is something that I've I've discussed with a lot of other uh, people in my church and other pastors. I like to ask them is um, should should there be learning? Um, you know, because think about it, right? I mean, the average retention rate of a person if if, if it's a fifty minute lesson, they're going to retain about ten percent of the information, right? So if they're retaining 10% of the information, what section of information do I want them to retain? So if we've got an hour Sunday school, quote unquote, uh, whether you call it Sunday school, adult Bible fellowship, small group fellowship, it doesn't matter. It's all under the same umbrella. And then you transition now into corporate worship, which is roughly about another 50 minutes. What 10% of which will they retain? So should the morning hour of small group fellowship or Sunday school be primarily like a lecture based? Should this be something where I'm, I'm, the teacher's getting up and they just are pounding information down my head. And then now I transition. I've got maybe a five minute thing to use a bathroom, maybe grab a coffee, check my kids out of children's church, bring them into the church. And then now I got to sit and I'm listening again. I mean, uh, uh, let's discuss that. Cause I think that there needs to be something, but what does that look like? I don't think it needs to historically be what it's always been, uh, especially in our modern context. Yeah, that's a, that's honestly a, a heavy question because I would say it depends. And let me just give some context of, of my answer, if you don't mind. So I've been in a Sunday school context of a large church. We had Sunday school before, and then we had worship. Um, and then I've been in a context where, um, and, and, and that, that first context, we had nothing but space, right? So most ministries had their own space. They had their own building in some cases. Um, and then I've been in another context where we didn't have the space 
to meet for an hour before. Like we just had worship service. We had one building. We didn't even own the parking lot. So we actually had to be out of the parking lot by a certain time because the city owned it. Right. So we couldn't have that. So I think it depends. I, I don't, um, think it needs to quote unquote look how it's always looked. Um, it needs to be much more involved um, with life, right? So I think it shouldn't, I, it shouldn't even be that just that one hour. I think people should have the mindset that, Hey, these people that are in this group right here, I'm probably going to see them again during the week or meet biweekly and have lunch or dinner, or I'm going to invite them to my home or whatever that is. Uh, it's much more than just a, a learning time because I think for a lot of people, they're just hearing another sermonette. That's right? truly, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. And I mean, you know, you're, you're a senior pastor, you're the preaching the sermon on Sunday morning. Not that a sermonette is necessarily bad, but I mean, it's just, they're just, it's information overload. Sometimes. Well, and I think with, with that too, though, I, I think you're, you, this, this raises a, a, a point that I like to stress with this is now I, hear me out here logically, right? So let's just say, you know, a church has five Sunday school classes, right? Not including kids, youth and everything else, right? Five Sunday school classes for adults. And I'm going to qualify adults as 18 and over, right? And it's intergenerational, whatever else. However, most churches don't do that. It's like fifties and sixties has their own twenties and thirties has their own forties and fifties has their own, which I don't like that at all. And that stems from Flake's formula. Yeah. I don't like that. It it needs to be Titus two model is intergenerational. It needs to be older with the younger, younger with the older. uh, And that is developing community and networks and stuff like that. But hear me out five groups, right? Five small groups, five Sunday school groups. Now, based off of that, now I've made a requirement that now I have five individuals that are going to be teaching in those groups. Now, what's baked with that is I need to have five individuals that are trained, knowledgeable, understanding, will actually dedicate the time to implement and to be able to teach. And then now this comes a whole other concern because you're going to have in with any church, whether people admit or not, several different theological perspectives, which may not be that of the senior pastor. So now you've got five different entities, five different individuals, five ten, potentially slightly different theological views. And I'm not trying to make a, you know, an opaque type of uh, Christian believer here, but you, in my opinion, you're creating more problems uh, than you're creating solutions because with that too, now you're creating five different factions because the biggest thing, and I know you've seen this, go into a church, right? That has Sunday school groups that has, let's just say it's three Sunday school groups. And I can guarantee you the teacher of those Sunday school groups has been there for however long, 15, 20, 30 years. And you say, Hey, you know, Babo, thank you for your teaching. Um, but there's other people that I want to raise up as leaders to learn how to teach too. I'm going to have them teach the class next semester. That's not going to go well. Mind boggling. They, they will lose their mind. This is my class. And then it's also referred to as, well, that's Babo's room. That's Babo's classroom. And so now what's happening too, if you do that, you, you, because human beings at the heart do hero human idol worship of everything to include our Sunday school teachers. So to me, it's a myriad of issues when you are assuming that your Sunday morning, small group Sunday school time should be primarily, as you said, I love that term sermonettes or mini lectures or lermons, right? A lecture right, yeah, sermon. Yeah. yeah. It, but what I think you said, and this is what my kind of philosophy of ministry is, is, 
we need to focus more on that fellowship of Acts chapter two, verse 42, right? That, that fellowship is not done enough. And you create this fellowship opportunity. Um, people will start to see this is what biblical fellowship is, but how do you create biblical fellowship? It needs to be around the word of God. So what I believe is a great method in a mode for Sunday morning groups is discuss scripture. So have a book of the Bible that each group, the whole church's Sunday school groups are going through, they're going through the same book, right? And then they're discussing the chapters with specific discussion questions. And then the leader of the group is a facilitator, not necessarily a teacher. They can do some teaching, but then also you build into this a, a semester or however you want to break it down rotational system so that the leaders of the groups, if you will, are, are identifying, all right, who's going to replace me after this semester is done. But then that teacher too, because you need to model this will stay in that class, but allow that other person, you got to raise up the next generation of leaders. And this is what you're talking about. That's multiplication, right? Yes. You have to have the mindset of the future. Uh, and, and I'll just give a great example of this is the best way to, for me to, to do this. So, um, when, um, I was at Heartland church, um, again, I, very fruitful ministry. Loved it. Still love them there. It's actually close from where we're at right now in Orlando, in Winter Haven, probably about forty-five minutes away. So when I first arrived there, uh, we had um, around ten percent. I think it's a little less of those and in groups involved in adult worship. A very low percentage, very low. Uh, by the time I left, we were hovering. Um, around 45%, somewhere around there. Uh, we had a little over 40 groups, rapidly growing uh, church and all that kind of good stuff. Um, but what we did, we had a, a group, small group meeting and a couple of the groups, and I was told that this was probably going to happen from people in the church on staff and people outside the church just seeking wisdom. They said, there's going to be some groups that say, hey, we're just going to keep doing our own thing. And, um, you know, it's just, it is what it is. And so this one particular group, they said, hey, you know, we've been a group for several years. We're a very large group. God's doing a lot of great things. And they had a large group. It was about 30 people. Um, and they said, you know what? We, we, we appreciate that you want to have a unified effort as it comes to content. right?" So I'm a big believer on unified content, not doing your own thing, right? Because that creates your little congregations, and that's not good. Um, but we're going to keep doing our own stuff. And so basically... I just didn't want to fight that battle. So I said, you know what? Do your own thing. By the time that I left, I could take the group leaders that were on board, that wanted to start new groups after a certain period of time, that wanted to be in the unified effort with content. They had already started three other groups, and they had probably had over 50 people, other 50 different individuals involved in group ministry that wouldn't have if they hadn't multiplied. That other group declined. Declined in numbers. Because people either just stopped going because they were burnt out. Because they met week in, week out, same group, different content. You know, just all the things. Or some of the people from within that group saw what was going on and they wanted to start their own group. Right. So that's what I mean by multiplication and going by the unified effort. I think each group, even if you meet in an hour before worship, each group needs to have the mindset of this will not look the same for a long time. 
right? A year or two, whatever time frame a church decides to put on it. If we need to be multiplying ourselves as an individual, we need to be multiplying ourselves as a group, right? Of maybe intertwining, maybe bringing other people in and sending people out. And I hate the terminology of, well, you just want to split our group up. You want to break our group up. No, we don't want to split your group up. We don't want to break your group up. We want to start new groups. But what's funny about that statement too, Mitch, is that someone says that you, you, you want to break our group up. You're qualifying something and what you're, what's baked into that is a presupposition that that is your group, right? Like that's, that's not your group. That is not your building. This is not your church, right? The, the church belongs to everybody. This isn't any one particulars person's group. It's not the pastor's group. The pastor is the under shepherd overseeing this. And what's I think is very telling about individuals like that is that if the rest of the church is on board and this is being cast as vision from the pastor, then who is really pastoring that group? It's not the pastor of the church, which has been called, hired, trained and everything to be executing that role. It's the the power hungry people within that group that wants to hold on to their nice, neat little thing because they don't want change. They think that they know what's best. But then then what on earth is my point being at this church? If you're not going to listen to me and you're going to continue executing what you're going to execute. And that shifts into another thing is that I think is critical is that one, the church needs to be going through at least at a minimum, at a minimum approval from a pastor to say, yes, that we will authorize that to be taught within the church. Right. Because what I will not have is someone says, Hey, Ethan, I'm going to choose this. And I mean, there's so many false teachers and false doctrines and false theologies out there. Absolutely not. Cause I'm held accountable. The pastors are held accountable for what's taught within that church. And so if all of a sudden they're teaching some Joel Osteen or some other stuff within the church, I got to give an account for that. So no, there has to be a pastoral approval and that's not like a, an authoritative dictatorship. No, that that's called being a protector an overseer. A watchman is what the pastor is supposed to be. So that's, I hate to say it, but that's, that's kind of the norm here. But well, I think a lot of times too, when people are very protective of their groups, those individuals are typically the ones getting the most out of it whether them studying the content or having their own kingdom or whatever it is, um, they just don't want the change. And what is created is the people in that group of, well, this person has been my Sunday school teacher for years. What that creates is just one person who's getting a lot out of it and you're getting a multitude of consumers. So you're not actually multiplying. You're not actually even adding you're, well, you're think about it too. Over time. Th- these groups that have been, for instance, that group, they've been meeting, let's just say they've been meeting for five years together. Is a, if a new person was to come into that group, is that group so nuanced because they all know each other so well that a newcomer would feel welcomed into that group? Oh, it would be, it, it would be very awkward. Oh, yeah. for sure. And, and I've, I've experienced that as a discipleship pastor and as a teaching pastor seeing it now that it could be very awkward. You know, especially when you get, um, and I don't know your group sizes. I, I don't, I, I have an idea in my head of what I think group sizes should be. Um, and what's funny, I can't unveil that now, but we came up with a definition of, of, of groups at the Point Church just the other day uh, because we didn't have a clear definition of that. Um, but um, you, you have these inflated groups and someone walks in, man, it can be a bit overwhelming. You know what I mean? Um because it's kind of like, well, it's a smaller group, but it's also a big group. It's it's just kind of awkward. And you can tell real quickly if it's an established group or not. 
Well, and, and at the same time, the flip side, I, it, it's funny how the pendulum swings both ways is that you can walk into a big group of like 30 and be like, oh, this is a lot. But you can also walk into a room of two and you're like, this is too few. And because then when you and my wife and I being in the military did this all the time, we'd walk in like, oh, this looks like a cool like, you know, where they would have like kind of like an expo day of like the Sunday schools going on. And I just remember at these churches, it was like a myriad of different topics. And so it's like whatever whatever itch you have, it can get scratched within the thing. And so we would go to one of these groups and I'm like, oh, this looks fun. And we walk in, there's like one other person and they, that the, the teacher and the other person would turn and be like, you must be new. And it's like, yeah, and this is awkward and I'm probably not coming back again, which I I'm sure is not the best mentality to have. But I mean, I, I kind of, for me personally, and I think as a whole, psychologically speaking, a lot of people like to just kind of ease in without being outed immediately and then feel like they can integrate within the group without being outed as the newcomer within the group, right? Even though it'll be understood if it's a solid group that's, regardless of the size, that's known, a new person coming in, you should go out of your way to introduce them and stuff like that. But it's not like this, and the new people here, because you're probably not tracking what's happening. It's like, hey, just integrate in the group. Just hit the ground running with us. Yeah, and I also think too, you know, people love a good invitation. They really do. I, I know of churches I've been in, they want to just, that they're so nice and they just want to invite as many people as they can to their group. But again, having the mindset of multiplication, even telling those people up front, hey, this won't look the same forever. You know, we're about to start a new group or whatever. Uh, for instance, uh, my wife and I, Brooke, we wanted to start a, a new group in our home and um, we wanted to designate it as, hey, we want to invite people who are not currently in a group. And uh, we would have several people, small group leaders, that they want to start a group and they would say, well, nobody's coming to my group. Can you announce my group to the church? Like, well, it's a church of, you know, almost 2000. If we announce that either you're going to have zero steel or you're going to have a thousand show up at your doorstep. So, and two, if we do that for you, we've got to do it for everyone else. Um, so, but we would tell people, invite people personally, like designate them. So we had three couples that we wrote down. We said this couple, this couple, this couple, and they were all different ages. And we asked all three of them, what was the percentage that said? Yes. 100%. Right. So people love a good personal invitation to that uh, with with also with with especially if it's, you know, Sunday morning hour. I think general rule of thumb, I tend to like a unified effort, a unified content. That's me. Some people may not prefer that, but I do because it it communicates a common goal of what you're trying to accomplish. You're all on the same page. Adults are able to have conversations with other adults about the same thing. Potentially, if you do it with the with the entire church, you could have parents having conversations with children. Yes. You could have uh, children having conversations with their brothers and sisters who are teenagers. You could have children having conversations with their grandparents. Right. And, and I might also add that the goal of a grandparent is not to watch the kids sugar them up and send them back all rude, but they're part of the disciple making process. Right. Although that I'm sure that's probably fun, uh, but that's not all of what a grandparent is. That's for free. Uh, but I think the unified effort is so beneficial. Um, and with the unified effort too, I, I want to say sola scriptura. It has to be the text, right? The 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 primacy of scripture above other studies that are so out there. Christian. There's so much Christian studies. Let me. I'm in here in the room. Christian studies in quotations. It's so bad. There's a lot of theology out there 
and it's bad. And even even with Southern Baptist studies around there, they're not good. And um, and I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus, but um, you know, recently I had a conversation with somebody. They wanted to study a certain thing at you know the Point Church, and I said, no, that's just not a an avenue we want to go. You know, and um, you know, and somebody might be scratching their head. Well, why not? It's a lot of people listen to it. A lot of people read his books. I'm like, well, that doesn't make it good, right? So uh, the primacy of scripture has to be priority, right? So uh, a unified effort. So if if I would tell churches, if you can create your own content, whether it be through a book of the Bible, great. I think we live in a day and age where pastors need to finally stand up and be pastors and maybe create their own content. Not that we shouldn't outsource sometimes. I'm not saying that that's bad. Like, no, no question. Uh, but we are the primary teachers of our flock, right? Of our people. And we are to care for them. And part of caring for them is getting them the correct doctrine and the right doctrine. And uh, that starts with with kids. And I've heard some people say, we tried to do this, you know, in a previous context of like, well, the kids won't understand the stuff. But yet we'll send them to school to learn calculus. But we can't teach them about doctrine and theology. That's that's a little off, right? Um, again, I, I think we, we have to be unified. So if we are all doing our own thing, we have all different types of missions. We have all different types of visions. You know, um, our pastor at the point, Tim Coleman, was we were having a conversation not too long ago. And it's kind of hard, you know, when you have um, visions from the Southern Baptist Convention, a vision from your state convention. You have visions from your local, you know, association, or and then you have your your church local mission or vision. Um, and I've shared that that conversation with a lot of other people. Like, well, you know, which one are you supposed to do? And so, as a as a senior pastor, to establish that mission and that vision, say, this is what we do, uh, not as a totalitarian leader or anything like that, but just having the unified vision and all that kind of good stuff. So. Uh, I think that's so, so beneficial. And again, having the mindset of multiplication. Yeah. Well, man, this is, uh, we've, we've gone now a little over an hour, but I think this, I mean, I think we did a great job given a, some real brief background context, bringing us up through, uh, how it came into America. Uh, what was the point and purpose of Sunday school primarily as an educational outreach? We're not saying that that was bad. We're not saying that was wrong, but it wasn't necessarily a Christian based church based biblically I guess you could say motivated thing, but it ended up evolving into that, not saying that it was bad, but then also now bringing it into a modern context, how and what could this play out in a modern church setting? But Mitch, thank you for joining me today. And I definitely think I want to have you back on. And I think we can shift focus to, and even more, I'd love to pick your brain, do a podcast specifically on what is discipleship? What, what is not discipleship? What would constitute a discipleship group? And because what we've discussed, I mean, that term's thrown around a lot, and it's very ambiguous yeah. in how it's used. Yeah, man, I, I appreciate this, man. It's been fun, and anybody listening, if you have questions about a strategy or whatever, man, I'd be more than happy to help out or, or even kind of draw something out. But, man, it's been fun, man. I appreciate you. And uh, How can people, yeah. since you said that, how can people get in contact with you should they desire to do so? Uh, yeah, you can email me, Mitch, M-I-T-C-H, at tothepoint.church. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Mitchell Ray John. Um, shoot me a message or an email. Awesome. Well, 
Guys, thank you so much for joining us today on the Battlefield Theologian Podcast. I pray that this helped you out uh, as we talk about theology, doctrine, and issues that matter within the local church. Uh, If you've got any questions or if you want or have desires for future topics or traditions that you've always wondered about, shoot me a message, Ethan at EthanJago.com, or drop a comment as well. Also, if you could, please uh, continue to rate us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. If you enjoy this, give us a five-star rating as this will help us uh, reach more people. But thank you guys so much for joining us on the Battlefield Theologian Podcast. See you guys next time.